Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Dion. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast this morning. I've got my, I think this is the second cup of coffee here in front of me. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's about, uh, I'm an hour ahead of you. You're in uh, Chicago. I'm in, uh, I'm on the East Coast. Um, Dion, I don't have much on my to-do list today other than this conversation that I'm having with you. And then I've got to get back to this writing project. So I was actually, when I went to bed last night, I was thinking I get to talk to that guy, Dion. Chicago. <laughs> yeah. That crazy, that crazy I, I, guy in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. That, that guy I don't know in, in Chicago that you and I yeah. connected on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. Um, I knew I had that conversation and then I'm going to work on this writing today. And then Dion, we have a base. We're big fans of the local baseball team. So we're going to baseball game tonight. Okay. So, uh, so I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of kicking off my day with you. Uh, Dion, we always ask our guests to introduce themselves before we dive into our conversation. How about you tell our listeners who you are? Definitely. Uh, Dion Dawson, the founder and executive director of Dion Chicago Dream, a nonprofit in Chicago that fights food insecurity, but in a different way. So instead of uh, stabilizing tonnage, we actually stabilize access and quality. So we um, right now providing about 15,000 pounds of brand new fresh produce to, uh, per month to about 1,900 residents per week in about 22 Chicagoland neighborhoods. Wow. Dion, so you got to tell me about, there's, 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 uh, you, you, you put that together and that's your elevator pitch there. Uh, oh no, that's, that's, that's the everyday because I do it every day. So this is, that's what we do. It's just, yeah, but you got to tell me you, before we unravel 
Before we <laughs> unravel the cause, you got to tell me who you are. So tell me who you are, Dion. I am uh, just a dreamer. You know, I'm somebody okay. who who has always kind of went against the grain. Somebody who didn't think that a college degree was the deciding factor on if you're great at something. I'm a yeah. Navy Navy veteran, a um, husband, a father. Um, yeah. I I'm just a happy guy. I love everybody, and you know, I get it. I get to wake up every day and just make people's life better. So I'm having the time of my life. Fascinating, Dion. I've got some students over at the college. I was in class last night with them, and they were talking about food deserts, and that was not a concept that I don't think. I think I've heard it used in my class because students, young people, are familiar with the term. But it's a term that I don't know that sort of. It's not a term that. A lot, my age uses a lot. Explain what a yes. food, because I'm guessing you know exactly what a food oh, desert yeah. is. Oh, yes, definitely. But I'll tell you this, um, even though the term is new, you know, once I tell you what it is, you know, you, you'll be able to kind of I'll get it. it. And yeah. it, exactly. It's just pretty much a, a certain space and area that has no grocery stores. There has no, there's no access to fresh produce or, or fresh options. And so yeah. in every city in America, there's an area um, and it's a problem only because, you know, in cities like Chicago, you know, there's neighborhoods with in a three mile radius with six grocery stores. And yeah. then, you know, right on another side of town, in, you know, a heavy black or brown neighborhood, there's no grocery stores. And so yes. that's just what a food desert is. It's just not be, living in the area where you have to travel outside of the area for healthy options. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the, one of the young men was explaining to me. He said that, um, um, that it's, it's, it's the quality maybe that's, maybe that's a word you just used. It's the quality of food that oftentimes they're having to venture out of the immediate proximity in order to get access to, there's a lot of cheap shit available to them, you know, around the corner, of but, course. but there's not, you know, if they actually want to eat quality food, if they want to prepare a healthy meal for their family, they, uh, they have to go. So that's what you're so I'm guessing that's what your organization does. So bring us back before we dive into our big conversation. So that is I'm guessing that is that sort of the centerpiece is that sort of the focus of what your organization does? The sort of really oh, no, problem? Definitely. So we actually created dream deliveries. And what yeah. dream deliveries is is a is an eight to ten pound box that houses a week's worth of brand new fresh uh, produce, fruits and vegetables, and we yeah. deliver it to directly to the household. So we're meeting the residents where they are instead of them meeting our organization where we are. And so by doing that and giving them that that delivery every week, we completely move the household from food insecure to food secure, and it only costs our organization per household for the year one thousand dollars. Oh, that's fascinating. I had a student, Dion, talking about a program like that uh, from Philadelphia. Uh, he was from Philadelphia, and he's, he, he was in my social enterprise course. He's in my small business consulting class. I'm going to see him tomorrow morning. I'm going to tell him, I'm going to say, Zaim, I think I just found a guy who actually has taken – and this was just visioneering on his yes. part. Because what we were talking about, Dion, in the class was the way that these – you know, well-to-do suburbanites are getting these uh, these these healthy food boxes delivered to their yeah. their home, and a lot of what yeah. Zaim and I were talking about this is this is about eighteen months ago in the midst of the pandemic. We were like, why can't we take that same idea 
you know, um, cause those people are paying, you know, who knows, you know, 30, 40, $50 a box. Why can't we take the same idea and, and deliver it to families who actually need that box? Of course. Um, and he conceptualized it, but it sounds like you're actually doing it. Oh yeah. And I, and the, the thing that actually allowed us to break through was that as an organization, we don't take any donated food. We purchase all of our food. Okay. And so by stabilizing where our food comes come from and the quality quality and owning it, we yeah. get to dictate where it goes, but we never have to worry about that quality level dipping. And so, you know, yes, we, we're actually doing it. We started off with 30 households and about 400 pounds a month that we've scaled in 18 months to 15,000 pounds and seven employees. And we're doing it with no volunteers at all. So you're employing people, you're providing oh, yeah. quality we food to neighborhoods that need it. And did you start this? I'm guessing, Dion, we started this probably in the midst of the pandemic. Oh, yes, we were. We, we found <laughs> our organization was founded in August of 2020. So we started oh, and that's that's going to that's going to lead into our fundraising talk, which is we started with negative one hundred dollars. And I tell people that that's because right. <laughs> the hundred dollars that you need for your business account, I borrowed it. Okay, so what's your big? So is that the big? What's the big idea? So we always ask our guests. You knew this ahead of time. What's yeah. the big idea or bold opinion? If that's what you, you put that put together, put that together for me. Oh yeah, my my big idea or, or or you know bold opinion is that in terms of of social enterprises, we should approach it almost like a music career or like a. Um, like a social media influencer, there's a lot of different streams of income that can come into an organization if you're set up to take on those streams of income. So, you know, for example, yeah. um, streams of revenue for us has included, of course, individual donors, but also advertising dollars because we're the number one nonprofit on TikTok, as well as our, our dream deliveries box. We're actually in the process of making it. And we've been able to take on advertising dollars because of the eyeballs that, that that we'll see the box. So, you know, things like that. Um, we've also just uh, partnered with the American Diabetes Association without having to give up our data, you know, our yeah. access to it. So, you know, that's how I feel. I look at the the music landscape and if you're independent, it may be harder, but there's so many different streams of revenue in terms of YouTube, social media influencing, uh, advertising. And I said that that's how our nonprofit has to be set up to survive. Now you cannot fundraise um, and hope that a grant comes through. You cannot fundraise and hope that you land that big donor. You got to show that no matter what you're really thinking as an entrepreneur, um, even in the social space and even with fundraising. Okay. So you started this organization several, <laughs> a couple of years ago in the midst yep. of the pandemic. Yes. You were basically broke. Uh, you were negative $100. Negative $100. Um, you're employing people. You're putting food yes. in places. Um, Dion, I have to imagine, uh, I'm probably one of the most vocal critics of contemporary fundraising practices. I have to imagine that for the last several years, and you might just help me beat my drum here for a minute. I have to imagine that you, you've heard lots of opinions about how to get this fundraising done. Am I right? Oh, of course. Of, oh, of course. Listen, you know that fundraising does not lack in the area of unwanted opinions. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like that, yeah. um, but the the beautiful thing about it is that you know when it when it comes to social entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship in general yes. um you you have to look at look at it as nonlinear you know people mm -hmm. think that they can tell you hey that's not the way to fund it but the beautiful thing is that 
that I got to learn as I as I've done it. And so we started our org the first year in 2020 as a $20,000 org. Uh, we grew last year to a $300,000 org. And this year, one page to be a $1.5 million org. And wow. so in terms of, you know, fundraising opinion, the beautiful thing about it is that we have proof of concept. And yeah. we also have that, you know, based around our theory of change and we have a logic model. And so yeah. in terms of somebody's opinion, it's on me as kind of a, a a new style of leader or fundraiser to make sure that I'm working as hard as those who are stuck in their ways. As long yeah. as I'm working as hard as they are and I'm showing it and not just trying to tell them I know what I'm doing, then it's not really a difficult conversation. Because I don't even get caught up on on them being um, wrong sometimes because I'm I'm fundraising and I'm doing it in a way and during a time where it is not easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is your proximity to the community uh, uh, an advantage? So one of the things that I've been writing about in this current book project is the notion of proximity. So there's a number of authors in the in the nonprofit space and otherwise. Um, who have been, uh, uh, Brian Stevenson has been talking about proximity for a number of years and others certainly have as well. It, 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 how much has, how much has you being in the community? I guess what I'm asking is, is, um, is, is you being part of the community? And then perhaps I'm guessing that fundraising is almost like a secondary or a, an outcome of you being just immersed in the community, how much of that is is part of the story? Well, I think there's ebbs and flows. You know what I mean? I think mm -hmm. that that of course is one of the things that that does set me apart. But I'm also very intentional. It's not an, an unintended outcome. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, what started as an organization with a community fridge grew into a logistics operation that has employed people and is feeding thousands of people per month. But yeah. We keep the fridge because being in the community allows us to be around those who are in need more than other people in the space. And so what I've seen is that it, it allows me to have a certain immediacy around my fundraising, a certain immediacy around the language that I use because I see and feel that need every single day. So, of course, it is a very big part, but. On some days and in some situations, it's, it's a smaller part and other days it, it's everything. But I think that, you know, you have to be extremely intentional in fundraising with your time. You know what I mean? And so I think that for me, I've been able to balance being a successful fundraiser and leader with also being a daily practitioner so that all of that can kind of kind of merge together to give a perspective that is unique to the problem we're trying to solve as well as fundraising for it. Okay, now I just figured it out, Dion. I was I was thinking, how did I connect with this guy? So you and I, you and I connected. There, there, you you posted something on LinkedIn several several weeks ago. I think it was about the images, the images that are often utilized to compel oh, yeah. some of the. Um, and, and and you you kind of went on a rant, and I oh, thought yeah. it was awesome, right? Oh yeah, and I, I I gave you a thumbs up or something like that. Unravel that for me, because I think that's an that's an extra layer. Um, for a guy who started this organization in the midst of pandemic, all the different things that we sort of talked about here in the first 15 minutes. But what was it we were talking about then? So, you know, it was the, the rant and my feelings about it was, you know, in 
in regards to poverty porn and you know yes. the images used to fundraise in the space. Yes, and right, and right. and and I will tell you this: the the beautiful thing about it is that that ties with your last question, because being in the community, I owe the people a certain respect in how I fundraise and the language and the images I use. And so because I'm around them often, I don't ever have to put it through a separate filtering process. You know what I mean? Because I'm around these people, I respect them, but in the sector and in food, we try to put the saddest images and we try to make sure that we can draw on those heartstrings. Now I have a background in communications and journalism. I won a few journalism awards uh, while I was enlisted in in the Navy. And so I know a lot about newsworthiness, you know what I mean? And when it comes to those elements, you know, emotion is but one of them. And so what I don't like in terms of, you know, the fundraising landscape is that that is the main one that's used. But then it puts, you know, leaders, especially leaders um, of color at a disadvantage, because if that is the way or the thing that we use in fundraising, we won't ever disrespect our people and show and highlight that. So yeah. if, if funders are looking for that, unless we are very intentional in our language as to why we're doing what we're doing and why we're not doing what we're not doing, then yeah. it will look as if we're less than in the fundraising space because we're not using that type of language. And so it's just me also, you know, sharing that I am a successful fundraiser, but I'm also very intentional with the language and the images I use. And if I am of this space, even though, you know, I've only been in philanthropy two years, um, I've actually been more food insecure in my life uh, than food secure. But as a leader in the space, I have to take responsi- uh, responsibility for what we created. And they- I have to make sure that I am sharing what I'm learning and I'm putting it out there to hold myself accountable. I won't, I won't prescribe to poverty porn. I won't you know, highlight something sad to get you to feel bad enough to give me money. No, it's the opposite. I'm going to show you outstanding and sound programming. I'm going to show you logistics expertise. I'm going to create jobs so that with seven people and two vehicles, we can, we can literally get to 1500 homes per week and be efficient and impactful. And so, you know, that rant is something I feel every day because as you know, it, um, it it takes a lot to be in this space, especially when you really actually care about people. And so I won't be make myself uncomfortable by not sharing what I'm learning, you know? So so you understand. So we've been talking about in the nonprofit sector this notion of poverty porn. But one of the things that we haven't talked about, and I'm guessing you've encountered this, is that poverty porn works. But the problem, it works. You put that image of that poor child, yep. you put that that picture, that awful, whatever those awful circumstances are that, yep. are that are hard to resist. I mean, there's a reason why we call it poverty porn. It has an addictive sort of characteristic element. to it, yep. right? There's an element to it that just we can't ignore it and we, yep. um, we have to respond to it. But the challenge is, and this is the thing that I don't see a lot of us in our fundraising space talking about. This is probably the first time that we've uh, that I've gone so far as to sort of put some of this language on the podcast, but this is basically consumer behavior that never goes away. And so what, yep. what I mean by that is once you show them that picture, the only thing you can do to get that donor to, to the only thing you can do in the future to compel it's, that same behavior is to give them show another one. of it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh no, uh, no, listen. And when I tell you that 
I not I know that, and it's it's a daily fight to fight against it. You know what I mean? Because you can see other organizations successfully implement it, and and it works at a high level. And you'll be like, okay, man. But the the beautiful thing about it is that I decided. So you know your fundraiser if 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 you're not using poverty porn, doing the work that you're doing, if you're not using those types of images, doing the work you're doing in the neighborhoods that you you're doing it, you know, Dion, you're choosing to raise money in harder ways. Oh, it's of course, harder I- fundraising you're choosing to do. Oh, of course. If if I had no conscience about it, I would say that we would probably be at about five million this year, easy. If if okay. I just you know decided to not have. Um, a certain ethos related to how we operate. But the, but the, the okay. good thing about it is that because the way we communicate and the way we fundraise um, either active or passively um, it's, it's anchored in our programming and our impact. And so the beautiful thing is that in front of everybody, you know, I, we, we update all of our social media platforms and we're communicating every day, but if they go back two years, it's night and day. And that's because yeah. we've made it less about our story and more about the programming and more about why this is so revolutionary and why we've been able and, and a black led organization that's, that has only two years in the space stabilizing such a big logistics operation is so profound. And so it's always, you know, me making sure like, hey. I owe not only the people responsibility, but I owe myself uh, the responsibility uh, as a leader to make sure that I'm telling this the right way. Because if I just use this, you know, with with uh, poverty porn also is that that could unravel so much hard work that you try to to build in the fundraising space. Like you've you've had, you know, the things you've stood on and and for three years you've been slowly etching away. And all it yeah. takes is you taking one week of just losing those values and it can upend all of the the hard work that you've created. And so, you know, I just try to make sure that I'm balancing out my expectations with, you know, the the, the work that we're doing every day, especially in fundraising. But yeah, it's 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 so hard to fight against at times. Even in, in me, I come from the community. You know what I mean? But I know that this organization and this approach and this model it's for the long term and not the short term. And so I don't get uh, um, infatuated with the short return. I'm looking at the, the bigger picture. So, Dion, I just recently read a dissertation written by a woman in Canada. Uh, her last name's Lee, and she's um, she uh, she actually did her. Oh, geez, I can't uh, forgive me for I can't think of the name of the institution where she did her work. But she basically describes so she's she's tackling these same issues from an academic standpoint. And she uh, she describes um, these gift catalogs. So these gift catalogs basically portray um, and, 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 and most of my listeners are going to be familiar with this, especially if they work with humanitarian organizations. They basically what she describes is these some symbolic commodities. So basically they package, they take a gift catalog, like a Sears catalog that you and I would get at Christmas time to buy our gifts. Right. But they package these, these package, these, the, you know, the children or the needs or those sorts of things. And they package it all within sort of the context of the marketplace. Um, and, and I was, I was reading this paper. I was like, wow, this is pretty, this is deep stuff. Um, we're packaging the, 
um, you know, the tragedy, the trauma, the abuse, the, you know, whatever leads to, and I think this is perhaps some of the, that was woven into the language that you put in that post, you know, we're packaging these narratives, these stories, yep. these images. And then in some cases we're literally selling them. We're selling them in, 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 in order in our fundraising appeals. But in this, yep. this, this woman's particular critique, we're going so far as to sell them no differently than the marketplace would. Yep, exactly. And, and if you, there's also a lack of, of attention to detail when you think about, you know, um, the fundraising landscape and yeah. when you, when you commit to that type of fundraising, you know what I mean? The beautiful thing is that what I've seen is when I, when I went against it initially, and as I've grown, my understanding of our intentionality and of our programming deepened to the point where I I don't have to sell a story or anybody's experience like that. And so yeah. now when I'm in grant meetings mm-hmm. um, or grant interviews, it's actually uncomfortable, but not just for me, but for the other party, because now I can actually go a step further in my my fundraising by hold holding the grantor accountable. For example, um, I had a, a grant interview yesterday, and when we talk about the boxes, the first thing that comes up is a um, something that's extremely toxic when we're talking about black and brown um, communities. Is oh well, uh-huh. are you putting you know food education and recipes in there? Yeah, and I actually and I actually responded and I said. Um, I actually surveyed our our recipients and 82% said they don't want that. And also, why does the conversation go to food education in black and brown communities when we're trying to feed them? How do you know what education level they have with food? You know what I mean? And so, you know, when we're talking about, you know, selling the experience or, or the trauma versus selling the programming and fundraising, it allows us to have a like a certain standard that we allow our, our potential partners and, and donors and funders to meet as well. And so now I don't have to go the poverty porn route because when they ask me, oh, well, how do people respond to the box? I say, that's none of my business. Does Dion, does the, does the person, does the per, I, I could make all sorts of assumptions as to who the individual was that was asking that question. Yes. But do they understand that they have bought into an ethos that has been ingrained in their mind since, you know, at least since the middle of the 20th century when we started doing a lot of our, you know, when we think about development in the third worlds and the southern half of the, you know, on the planet and just just the way that that, that whole notion that we have to educate a a population in order to ensure that they know how to use this box of food, yes. for example, correctly. I think that, um, does, um, yeah, does, I think- does he or she know that they've sort of bought into an ethos that, or, or do you have a way? Cause I can sit there. I can, I can sort of pick up on the energy and I'm thinking here, you know, Dion wants to close this gift and he's got other things to worry about, but there's like some, yeah i know no it's funny but i know exactly what you're saying and and here's the thing i i'll tell you this it's not about closing the gift for me and i think that's the beautiful part like like and 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 i remind myself because 
most of our biggest and most fruitful partnerships, even when it comes to, you know, funding bodies and, and donors, it they're the ones that kind of either realize it in that moment or they've grown with us. And I'm not talking about in a sense of a bigger commitment, but just in a yeah. sense of how the conversation is had. And so when I have, but is uh, it you, Dion, is it your response? I guess what I'm asking is, yes. is it your responsibility to change that, that individual's way of thinking? But I don't look at it as if it's my responsibility or, or not, but, but uh-huh. what I will do is I will, if there's a moment to teach or move the marker, I will. And, and, and yesterday in that moment, Uh it got uncomfortable and I thanked them a little bit for it because that's Uh when I knew that some of the things that have been ingrained have actually come to light in this conversation. And they kind of saw how that question shouldn't really be a part of a certain type of type of conversation. And so no, like, like, I have to do because I am of this sector. I am of my people, sure. but I'm yeah, also yeah. philanthropy has to get better. And so, no, like it is my responsibility as a thought leader, as a social impact leader, as a community leader, as a leader of my family to if I'm in a space, hold myself accountable to if something can be said to to bring perspective. Yes. And since I know that it's coming from a place of love and, and wanting everyone to be better, I, I go for it. And and that's why I'm in the position I'm in and why I've been so successful is because I don't I don't second guess myself. I, I go for it because it has to be said. Okay, okay. Let's unravel that for a minute. Cause I don't think yes. a lot of people I don't think a lot of people see fundraising this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I've been reading, so Jane Adams at the beginning of the 20th century is in, is in Chicago and she, she understood philanthropy in much the same way that I think you're understanding philanthropy. Part of your mission in philanthropy is to help that gentleman, that woman, whoever's asking that question, reconfigure that it, it, part, part of, part of your fundraising journey part of the journey you're supposed to be affording the donor is for them to make sense of why they're asking that question. Yes. And I mean, it's so weird because I think you can attest to this. I mean, anybody that's in fundraising can attest to this is that during the, the, the interaction. Yeah. You, you wear so many different hats and the power dynamic kind of shifts and it's really like a dance. And so I just, Part of that is just kind of deciding that I won't make this a a push and pull thing. I'm going Mm -hmm. to open my hand. You're going to look at my cards and we're just going to have an honest conversation. And I think from there, that is why, you know, partnerships such as the American Diabetes Association, the Joyce Foundation, a lot of big, you know, uh, people. It's been a simple conversation because I you have to make in fundraising. It does not have to be complicated. And what I've seen is that, you know, it's not about money. You know what I mean? It's about value. And if if it's really about the value that we give to our recipients, then I should be who I portray myself to be. It should not be we have this interaction and it becomes a, oh, do you deserve this? It's no. I am Dion Dawson, and this program and this product that we're providing our recipients is so profound and strong that what you want to get out of philanthropy and being a donor, you're going to get all of those types of value and more. Do you know peers in other 
parts of the city and other parts of the country that sort of have this understand there's a there's a there's sort of a a wave of conversations and I don't know if you're sort of in these conversations within the fundraising space specifically but I'm curious to know if there's other Dion's around the country that are in completely different contexts, you know, doing other, you know, addressing other deserts, but maybe not food deserts um, that are approaching it with this sort of mindset. Have you met them? I've, I've met a few people, but it's also not necessarily, it doesn't have to be food. You know what I mean? mean. um, No, no, of course. Of course. Yes. And, 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 I think, you know, this model or this approach is not mine to to keep. You know what I mean? Yes. I think that it's all about all of us learning together and pulling, you know, uh, aspects and elements from other, you know, sectors and industries or other peers. And I've met I've met some and I'm still meeting them. But in philanthropy, especially, you know, in fundraising and social impact. A lot of people have turned off that beautiful uniqueness that made them want to get in this in the space and br- and what they wanted to bring to it you know what i mean and so you know i also see in conversation how me succeeding and and surviving in this shows them that it's possible that's why you know if anything i i did that rant you know what i mean because this go, rant- go back to that go back to that statement who's turning that up? who's flipping that switch it sounds like somebody who's disillusioned with whatever they got into this to do but it's at every level it could joy. be corporate it, it it could be it could be you know other social impact leaders it could have been it could be people from the co- uh corporate world it could yeah. be big time donors you know if everybody's prescribing to this poverty porn or this or the 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 lay of the land in terms of fundraising yeah then i don't think any of us originally thought that it would be like this. You know what I mean? All of us in philanthropy, in fundraising, the thing that binds us together is hope. You know what I mean? And that, that hope drives you to go into the social impact space to make a difference. And so, you know, these people are everywhere. It's just that they prescribed to what's working for other people or what they think they need to do. And they go against their gut. They go against the thing that makes them them. And, you know, I, that's also, you know, something that I want to to disrupt and kind of bring to a head is we have to stop monkey seeing monkey doing. We have to, you know, <laughs> stop looking at this food or because for me, I looked at the food landscape and I said, well, most of these, you know, if we're talking big time food banks, yeah. they supplement their donated food by buying food. So me only buying food is not outside the realm of possibility, but most food banks, they don't promote that they buy food. If we're talking on the smaller scale, a lot of smaller organizations don't own the food. They're hoping to get food donated. So if you're talking about fresh food on hand, they have none. And so, you know, I would hope that we're always evaluating and reevaluating what's actually working so that every year we can evolve with the need. The need just evolved so quick in the last two years that it completely showed how incapable we were as a, as a sector to, to, you know, evolve with it. And so, you know, I think that the leaders and the people, the powers that be in every space in terms of social impact, we have to get back to, to being flexible. We have to look at this and understand that if that need increases, 
where did we build that foundation even in, in, in fundraising? You know what I mean? How did you yeah. stabilize your, your, your funding sources so that if the need increased, of course it would be overwhelming, but I mean, solving world issues is overwhelming at times. But if you have a sound way of approaching it and having different, having different revenue streams, it shouldn't be something that forces you to just do what other people are doing. Okay, so my 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 social enterprise students next week will be having this conversation about building this uh, co creating co creating the solution to whatever problem they're deciding to tackle. Who, who in the last three years have you most relied on the most? I mean, you've been on quite a journey. Yes, you've done a lot in three years. You've grown exponentially. You've done it in the midst of a very difficult time to do it. You found a you you found a solution that I guarantee you is being experimented with. I mean, just just by the conversation that I had with my student, I know it's not a, I know it's not a, it's a brilliant idea. It's a simple idea, but who have you most relied on last couple of years? I I mean, I mean, with respect to to this journey, I've leaned on so many people. Yeah. You know what I mean? That I can't even begin to pinpoint. I mean, my wife, you know, I've leaned on my men. I have multiple mentors. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, even my mentor, uh, Dory McWhorter, who's over uh, YMCA Chicago. Sure. Uh, and her, you know, one of her famous lines or favorite quotes is, you know, nonprofit is just a tax status. You know okay. what I mean? And yeah. And hearing that and as a leader and fundraiser, understanding what she's conveying. Understanding yeah. that this has to be ran like a business because it is a business, but you know, leaning. I mean, it's there's not one thing. There's not one that you know. I can say I lean on more than the other one. This is a very self isolating journey when when you're talking um, entrepreneurship, and so you just always have to to learn and always have to apply and always have because it, it it will never be comfortable. You know what I mean? I yeah. realized about six, seven months ago that it I'll always have that healthy fear. And so in terms of leaning on people, um, I think that's the biggest thing is leaning on something or someone externally, period, is the biggest thing because it's something that you can't do by yourself. You yeah. can't teach yourself new things. You can't challenge yourself um, the way that other perspectives and other lived experiences can. And so I think just the the very essence of leaning on external people alone is something that will completely change a, per- a person's trajectory. So, Dion, we've got a few more minutes. One of, the li- one of the questions I like to ask people at the end of the conversation. So we get about 150, 200 downloads a day on this particular podcast. That's the entire library. So this conversation will this this conversation will continue to be listened to for quite some time. Who's the person you want to hear from? Who's the person you want to hear from? So there's probably a you know there's probably probably a handful of fundraising consultants like myself who want to give you some great brilliant ideas about how to raise money. And there's but there might be somebody who's in the neighborhood there in Chicago who might actually need your help. Might be a you know multi-million billion dollar donor who might be interested in helping you who's the person you most want to hear from oh well i mean that's easy um her name is Mackenzie scott because she's she's definitely <laughs> making splashes um but you know i like that you knew exactly yeah. and i listen folks i didn't prep him on that he at knew all. exactly had to answer at that all. question <laughs> and i mean and, and and also i just want to make sure that um I want to have a conversation and it's less about asking money because I just want to, you know, 
the the thing about you know dropping a lot of money and and staying in the shadows is yeah. I would love to to have a conversation and make sure that she knows the responsibility that she has and and this power dynamic that she's creating. You know what I mean? And and if this sector is something that is shifting to make sure that a billion dollars is not going to structures that are doing it the wrong way. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's one person, but, but this is for any big donor out there. Yeah. I want, I want them to, to challenge themselves and, and make sure that they're not bringing toxicity into the environment. I want to make sure that they're not prescribing to poverty porn. I want to make sure that they don't walk into conversations or potential funding opportunities for other orgs and using their power dynamic against that organization. This should be something where it it should be about critical needs, social services. Once we stabilize critical needs, we can get to social services, but I just don't, for the life of me, I can't see how we could drop 1 million on violence prevention. If everybody is hungry or they're homeless or they don't have so any Deanne, clothing. What do you, so if McKenzie's listening to this or somebody yes. who has connections to McKenzie, of course, to Mrs. To Ms. Scott, if yes, somebody's Ms. listening Scott. to this conversation, what do you think she needs to hear? What do you understand? What do you understand about her circumstances that if she heard you say it, she'd be inclined to respond and, and reach out to you. I you understand think that, about her, her, the ship she's sailing. So you understand the ship because you've been, you've been sailing quite a ship for the last couple yeah. of years, but she's been sailing one too. And it's, it's, of it's course. countercultural. It's of countercultural. Course. She's doing things differently. What do you want her to know you understand about her circumstances? I understand that. I mean, just that, that she's, you know, her ship in, in, addition to mine, we're trying to do it different. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think yeah. that, you know, I see not just her, but the people who really have intention behind fixing this thing. There's a there's a certain guilt that we carry. You know what I mean? And I can see it, you know, in all of the people who are trying to get it right. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're not we're we're not saying that, hey, we know, you know, what the absolute right way is, but we know that, you know, this has been wrong for so long. You know what yeah. I mean? We know yeah. that, you know, philanthropy is donor based and not recipient focused. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I would just want to tell her and our team that, you know, I see how much it hurts to 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 look at and witness all of this trauma. And it's not easy. You know what I mean? And yeah. especially when you think that you're disconnected from it. If you're someone who feels um, then it, it's so difficult. And I mean, you know, anybody out there, big donor or small, there's no big donor. You know what I mean? If somebody has $5 and they give $250, they are a big donor. You know what I mean? So any donor out there, you know, I want them just to understand that, you know, everybody who who's operating in the space, nobody knows what's going to work or what so we're going to end up on the other side. So, so if Miss Scott has goobered up something, she's end up giving to the wrong place. You know, she's trying to get it right. That's what, I, that's what I'm hearing in between the lines of that. Of course. Of Is that course. what I'm hearing? You know Definitely. she's trying to get it right. Yes, yes. And and she deserves, you know, just, just like everybody else, just, you know, a pat on the back for even trying to get it right. Yeah. That's a good way to wrap it up, Dion. Listen, man, we lose our listeners at 40 minutes in. Um, where can people find you? What's the name of the website? What's the email address? Somebody's going to hear this. They're going to want to reach out to you. You're in a big town. There's a lot of people right there in the in the, in the Chicago land that could per- perhaps uh, – Give you some uplift. So uh, of course, of course. Find you? Oh yeah. Uh, website is Dion's Chicago Dream. D I O N S Chicago Dream. We're on every social media platform at Dion's Chicago Dream. Uh, 
our email, DionChicagoDream at gmail.com. And, you know, please reach out, even if it's, you know, to be thought partners, to support um, in the Chicagoland area. If um, it's a family, you know, that's food insecure, we can get them on our wait list and um, get these dream deliveries to them. But, you know, that's that's it. You know what I mean? Any way that we can be of assistance to our community, to our our residents and to the sector, that's what we're doing. Hey, Dion, it's certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.